Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history, one from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and it's January 11th. Oral arguments began before the U.S. Supreme Court in Hernandez versus Texas on this day in 1954. This goes back to a murder case. On August 4th, 1951, Pedro Hernandez, who went by Pete, murdered Gaetano Espinoza, known as Joe, in a tavern in Edna, Texas. There's some dispute about exactly what led to this murder, but the fact that Hernandez killed Espinoza was really clear. Hernandez was indicted and denied bail, and his mother went to attorney Gustavo Garcia, who was known as Gus, for help. Hernandez wound up with a defense team that included several experienced civil rights lawyers, including Garcia, Carlos Cadena, John J. Herrera, and James DeAnda. So it might seem strange for a straightforward murder case to include so many defense lawyers, especially so many lawyers that had experience in civil rights cases in Texas already. And that was because, while working on an earlier case, Herrera and DeAnda had discovered that people of Mexican descent were systematically being excluded from juries in the state of Texas. They had gone through all the records and found that in 70 Texas counties over the prior 25 years, there had never been a single person with a recognizably Mexican surname on a jury. And the court system had gone around that discovery with the argument that people of Mexican ancestry were classified not as Mexican from a legal perspective, but as Caucasian or white. In DeAnda's words, quote, well, Mexicans are Caucasians, and there were Caucasians on the jury. So what are you fussing about? So when these men became involved in the defense of Pete Hernandez, it was not just about Hernandez's constitutional right to an attorney, which is guaranteed under the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It was also about the impartiality of that jury and the idea of whether it was possible for a Mexican defendant to truly get a fair trial in a court system that appeared not to allow Mexican jurors on the jury. Throughout Hernandez's trial, the defense team tried to make the argument that the exclusion of people of Mexican descent from the jury was discriminatory. And during all of this, they tried to establish that even though Mexicans were classified as white legally, Mexicans and people of Mexican descent were treated as a class apart from Anglos. In Cadena's words, quote, about the only time that so-called Mexicans, many of them Texans for seven generations, are covered with the Caucasian cloak is when it serves the ends of those who would shamelessly deny this large segment of the Texas population their fundamental rights. At his trial, Hernandez was found guilty, and the case went through a series of appeals before finally being heard before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the team knew it was really risky to take this case to the Supreme Court. None of them had ever argued before the Supreme Court before. And Hernandez had murdered someone. He was not likely to have the court's sympathy at all. 
It's also very expensive to take a case to the Supreme Court, and the attorneys involved would all be losing income for their time away from their own practices while they did it. So there was a lot going on. But the Supreme Court did agree to hear the case. This made Hernandez versus Texas the first Supreme Court case directly connected to civil rights for Mexican-Americans and the first case to be argued before the Supreme Court by Mexican-American attorneys. The Supreme Court issued its unanimous decision on May 3rd of 1954. The decision was that being denied a jury of his peers, including Mexican-Americans, meant that Pete Hernandez was being denied his 14th Amendment protections. This denial was unconstitutional. This was a milestone ruling, not just for Mexican-Americans, but also for the idea that there are not simply two racial classes in the United States, black and white, but there are also other classes of people who may also need protections and guarantees of their rights and that these classes may not even be related to race. There has, however, been some debate about how much this decision really helped Mexican-Americans because its core question was not whether Mexican-Americans deserved equal rights or about securing equal rights for Mexican-Americans. It was really about whether Mexican-Americans were to be considered white. There is more about this in the September 27th, 2017 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a tragic blizzard. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Eves. And you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show where we peel back a new layer of history every day. The day was January 11, 1879. British troops led by Lieutenant General Lord Chelmsford invaded Zululand, which was a monarchy in southern Africa. The invasion marked the start of the nearly six-month-long Anglo-Zulu War, which resulted in the defeat of the Zulus. Some historians have also marked January 10th, 12th, and 22nd as the beginning of the war. In the early 19th century, warrior king Shaka conquered all the groups in Zululand and united them under a single state. The Zulu kingdom grew in size and military might in the years after Shaka took over, though it did weaken after his death in 1828. Boers, or the descendants of Dutch and Huguenot immigrants, had land claims on territory held by the Zulu kingdom. The Zulu people frequently clashed with the Boers over land and cattle. In 1843, the British annexed the Natalia Republic to form the colony of Natal, But in the second half of the 19th century, the British Empire wanted to further extend its influence in South Africa. Britain wanted labor for the diamond fields, Boer land claims, and to create a confederation in South Africa. Sir Bartle Freer was appointed the British High Commissioner to South Africa and sent to Cape Town to take South Africa's British colonies, Boer republics, and independent black states and turn them into a confederation. But Zululand, bordering Natal and the Transvaal, was powerful and self-reliant. Sir Bartle Freer and Sir Theophilus Shepston, British governor of Natal and the Transvaal, saw the Zulu people as a threat to the policy of confederation and prosperity in South Africa. 
So in December of 1878, under the pretext of border incursions into Natal by the Zulu people, the British sent an ultimatum to Zulu King Tijuayo to disarm and pay reparations, among other terms. But Tijuayo refused to bow to the demands for federation or to disband his army. The ultimatum expired on January 11, 1879, or January 10th by some accounts. So the British decided to invade Zululand. The plan was to occupy the Zulu royal crawl, or village, at Ulundi by advancing on it from three directions. One column of Lord Chelmsford's invasion force crossed into Zululand near the mouth of the Tugela River. Another entered Zululand from the Transvaal, heading toward Ulundi from Utrecht. And the center column crossed the Buffalo River at Rourke's Drift. The Zulus had some guns, mostly muskets and some rifles, but many warriors had shields and spears. The first attack of the war took place on January 12th. The Zulu people suffered more losses than the British in that battle. But the British were defeated at the Battle of Isanwana later that month, when the Zulu killed hundreds of their soldiers and took their rifles and ammunition. Fighting continued until July, when Chelmsford's troops moved on to Jwayo's royal villages at Ulundi. Tijuayo was forced to flee and captured in August, then exiled to the Cape. The British divided the kingdom into 13 territories under appointed chiefs. Civil war soon broke out, and in 1883, Tijuayo was reinstalled as king. But his power was limited, and he died the next year. Zululand was declared a British territory in 1887, and 10 years later, it was annexed by Natal. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Looking for content a little more sophisticated than cat memes in your feed? Connect with us on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. And if you would like to write me a letter, you can scan it, turn it into a PDF, and send it to us via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.